They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes Morgues and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone, this is Bijamide, aka The Terrible Aussie, and welcome to episode 13 of Bean vs. The Living Dead, the podcast where I dissect every remake, reimagining, homage, spoof, unofficial follow-up, and so much more to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. Now, before we get to this episode of the show, I need to make another apology uh, for the second episode in a row. Once again, in the previous episode, I was going to say that this episode was going to be on the off-Broadway musical Night of the Living Dead, the musical. But uh, unfortunately, once again, due to scheduling conflicts with my guests for that episode, that episode has been pushed back to a later date. So that episode will come in the future. And also apologies for it to be slightly late as well by one week. So once again, apologies for that. Now, with that out of the way, let's get straight to episode 13, which I'm very excited about because after discussing on the previous episode the theatrical versions of Night of the Living Dead, it's time to go into the literary world of all things Night of the Living Dead. And for this episode, I decided to call in on the experts who know a thing or two about writing horror novels. And they are two first-time guests as well. And first up, of course, is a writer who is the author behind books such as House of Size, Dirty Heads, and most recently, Cut to Care, a collection of Little Hurts. And that, of course, is Aaron Dries. Hello, Aaron. How are you? Welcome to the show. I am very well, and thank you so very much uh, for having me. I can't wait to eat brains with you guys. This is great. Literary brains. Exactly, exactly. So we'll have a lot to talk about. And also my second guest is the author behind books such as Soul Survivor, Soul Survivor 2, Drop Bears on the Loose, which is probably my favorite title of all time for a book. And as well as most recently, When the Cicadas Stopped Singing. And that, of course, is Zachary Ashford. Hello, Zach. How are you? Oh, good. Thanks, B. Thanks for having me. Uh, Really great to be here. And I guess I've got no pun uh, like Aaron, so I'll just say, like the zombies in the movies, I'm slowly learning how to do this podcast thing. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I, I mean, I can't blame you guys, but I figured because you guys who I've known for a while on Twitter and Facebook and that, I mean, if I'm going to do a book that is about Night of the Living Dead, I like I said, I needed to call the experts because you both are you both are horror authors in your own right, and you guys have written some. Great stuff that has been very popular for a lot of horror fans out there. So I figured, you know what? I need you guys' opinion because you know more about writing books than I do. Um, <laughs> so oh, I'm very really glad that you... Aaron. Yeah. I, nominated for everything this year. Is that right? Like literally everything you're eligible for, you, you're there? 
Um, I, I seem to be making up for lost time this year. <laughs> Maybe I seem to be doing okay on that front, but who knows? Uh, I've been nominated for a bunch of stuff this year, but I might win none of it. So it could be a case of always a bridesmaid, never a bride. And that's okay. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with being a nominee because it, it kind of gives you that established figure. Somebody who most, and I, I'm kind of slightly gloating as well. Also, being a co-winner of a uh, a podcast by the Australian Film Critics Association, it is a bit of a privilege when you do win something, but it's always, always fun to be nominated as well. But like I said, I'm glad you guys are both here. And for this episode of the show, we're going to be talking about a book that's set in the universe of Night of the Living Dead. And, that, and it's actually a short story collection, which of course is Knights of the Living Dead, an anthology. Now, before we go into the discussion on this book. Aaron, Zachary, I have a very important question I need to ask you both, and it's one that I always ask every new guest or guests that whenever they come on this show, and that, of course, is, do you guys remember the first time when you saw Night of the Living Dead? Uh, Aaron, you first. I do, actually, and I remember it really, really vividly. It was... I don't know what, I can absolutely guess why I remember it so vividly because it made one hell of an impact on me genuinely. Although I watched it in the most kind of weirdest circumstances. I remember it was obviously uh, uh, like some, it was a Sunday. We, my family had been dragged to church against our will by my grandparents. And I remember coming back and my grandfather taking me to the video shop and he was like, Look, mate. Whatever you want to watch, we'll watch together. Because he wasn't um, he he wasn't a very churchy guy, and uh, and anyway, he's like, let's get a horror movie. So I think it was just to kind of cleanse the the Bible off him to some degree. So and anyway, I, I picked up um, uh, Night of the Living Dead, and it was the colorized version of Night of the Living Dead on VHS, and I remember watching it with him and being absolutely blown away. So I remember, and I would have been maybe like 10, 11. Uh, yep. so I, but I think that is the perfect time to be watching a film like this. I remember at a later date reading Dance Macabre by Stephen King, and in it he makes a reference to, like, you know, children watching Night of the Living Dead or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and if they watch it at too young an age, they're going to end up, like, in a locked room drawing with crayons for the rest of their life. And I thought, I turned out okay, but at the same time I do love my crayons. So it kind of all tracks massively, but I remember just loving it to bits and pieces. Uh, the thing that I love most about it, because even at that age, I wanted to tell my own stories. I loved how obviously made with love and handcrafted it was. Like Romero is literally out there holding that camera, running through those fields with all these guys. And I think that that absolutely shows through in the film and it has an immediacy as a result of that. And I got that from, from the first time that I saw it in that bastardized, washed out crayon style colorization that they did in the early early 90s it probably was earlier than that but then after that i was one of those people who bought every incarnation of it as it came out um i got i got myself uh, a, a dvd of it which was this awful cropped like 12th generation uh bastard of a thing and then there was like the 40th anniversary which nobody wants to speak about with all these insertive yep. you know, sequences i now i have my beautiful criterion version which i just absolutely love and rewatched lately and i also managed i've managed to see it on the big screen a couple of times uh which has been fantastic because i love watching that film with people who haven't seen it before because 
everyone kind of can fall into the rhythm of the things that it has established and have now absolutely become synonymous with the zombie, um, uh, you know, genre as a whole. But that ending still absolutely works. And those final moments of that film as the credits roll, it's impossible not to be affected by that even today. And I love watching audiences get totally obliterated by those those closing moments so it's something that i love and and uh have for a long period of time and when i couldn't get my own copy of uh, night of the living dead and i really wanted to see the black and white version when i was a kid after seeing the colorized version i remember obsessing and being absolutely obsessed by a documentary called document of the dead which was all yes. about which was shot on on basically shot majority of it on the set of dawn of the dead and it showed clips from all of Romero's other works. And that's where I became obsessed with films that I had no way of seeing at all because they just were not at any of my local video stores in any direction, in 40 kilometres, in any direction. And those big ones for me were Martin. I absolutely was obsessed with Martin. I'd never seen it. Um, recently got the beautiful 4K and it's just as good as you could ever hope it would be. And, um, and, and of course, Dawn of the Dead, which I was obsessed with. And I read the novelization too before I had a chance to see it. So I was a, I was a, a absolutely obsessed with this world from day one after that church, you know, <laughs> the world's longest church service. And I'm not, and I'm not religious at all, but I think there's no better chaser to church than, than George Romero. <laughs> and it's funny you kind of mentioned like uh, the 30th anniversary edition because our audience can't see this, but I literally have it right here next to me. Um, <laughs> the old-fashioned 30th anniversary edition, which I did review for the show a couple of episodes back. And of course, as you said, Aaron, got the 4K of Martin right here. Not that I had those there, but I, my Blu-ray shelf is right here next to me. Uh, so I'm able to grab them. So <laughs> don't look, don't leave home without them. I think you should absolutely have George Romero, like you know, physical copies within reach. Like I'm just disappointed that you didn't pull out. There's always vanilla, or you know, oh, like, oh it's my, back there, but it's back there behind me somewhere in the other shelf. That one. So <laughs> I, I, I never leave home without Monkey Shines. I showed Monkey Shines to my partner recently, and uh, I was really, really impressed by how much, how well that film holds up. Like it's really well directed. It's super well crafted. Uh, it's a it's a total gem. There are all of Romero's stuff are gems. Honestly, they're all incredible. I could talk about this stuff for days. <laughs> but uh, Zachary, when was the first time you saw Night of the Living Dead? Oh man, I've got to go back to when I was a teenager. And one of the things I often think about with like many horror movies, particularly older movies as well, is you don't always come in with the first one first. Whereas these days, you know, I've got to go back and see the first, like Aaron just mentioned Monkey Shines. I haven't seen it because I've got the book on the shelf and it's somewhere in the TBR. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to watch that till I've read that, you know, sidetracking. But with uh, Night of the Living Dead, I sort of came to horror movies through metal music. And so, you know, so many bands like Cannibal Corpse and stuff are always singing about zombies because what else are they going to sing about? And so I'm like, okay, well, let's find some zombie movies, you know. And um, I think Day of the Dead was the first one I saw, which was just, it's just so brutally intense and I still I think that's still probably my favorite zombie movie of all time maybe because the first was so intense so then I had to go okay well there are these other movies and being a teenager in the world of dial-up internet it was really you know not easy to get too much stuff but I found out one of my mates his dad he was downloading the movies on his dial-up probably taking 16 years on LimeWire or whatever getting a thousand viruses at the same time <laughs> and um 
yeah, so Brian is like, you know, I've got this Night of the Living Dead and we're like, okay, so where does this fit in with Return of the Living Dead? All, all these Living Dead movies are dead, dead. What is the timeline here? I have no idea. Let's just watch it. I remember at first just being like, oh, it's black and white. Like, what's the go, you know? Like, and because not really knowing too much about it at all. And as a teenager, I'm just like, oh, so is this going to be like the old Dracula or The Raven or Frankenstein, these movies that, you know, you'd watch on Turner Classic Movies as, as a kid kind of thing. And then I ended up watching it on this little tiny, you can't know, can see me doing TV shape, but little tiny screen in my bedroom, I think played on a burnt DVD, you know, on, on you know, the computer screen in there. And it's just like, okay, watching this thing, oh, just so intense again. Like, and that's, I think that's what I love about these movies. Like as much as they're about the zombies, they're totally about the, the interpersonal clash in a small space. And the, and that's what I think is just so amazing about it. And so that would be the first time I watched it. I probably would have been maybe 16, 15, something like that. So late 90s, in the bedroom, on the, you know, the TV screen or the, the laptop screen, computer screen, I should say. And, um, yeah, just watching it there and just sitting there, you know, thinking, okay, it's, it's black and white, but I'm going to give it a go because everyone says it's really good on, on the internet. And Yeah, okay. Well, it's, yeah. So that, that's me. I'm not. I haven't got as much to talk about as, as Aaron with it. But <laughs> I, I like my, the way you with a lot of movies. I like the way you did the little the, the finger square off of the TV. It kind of reminded me of in Pulp Fiction when Uma Thurman's like, "Oh, don't yeah. be a square," and then ding. I was having <laughs> yeah, a little Uma, yeah. <laughs> uh, in in my mind for a second. You had this kind of black bob wig, and you were in a in a really cool old car doing your little um, <laughs> Uma Thurman kind of cosplay. <laughs> Well, I've got I've got a wig up there somewhere. I think it was for my um, Macready costume for Jean Oh, look, okay, look. I know that this uh, you had re- we had really great ambitions for today's podcast, but I think we completely shift gears <laughs> and it just becomes we just watch Zach get dressed up as Macready. <laughs> Perfect uh, so pod. I, the, the thing that made it, I had the little um, petri dish with paint in it. That that's gone. I don't know where that is. So Perfect. We should add a lot. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, I have a wig as well, but I'm not going to explain why I have a wig. That's for uh, personal <laughs> reasons, but that's a whole different story right there. But uh, yeah, well, I'm glad to hear both your guys' takes on seeing the film for the first time, because it's kind of similar, because like you, Zach, I did see it around about 15, 16 as well. And I've talked about this many times on the show previously, watched it as part of a a horror show that used to be on Foxtel called The Graveyard Shift. So that was when I first saw the film. But it wasn't the first zombie film I ever saw. That was uh, Return of the Living Dead Part 2 was the first one. And (laughs) so that one is always stuck stuck in my mind. But Night of the Living Dead, I believe, was either the second or third I saw. But like you guys, it definitely left a major impact on me on that first viewing. And I did say before, I think the first time I watched it, I was actually a little pissed off with the ending, with what happens to the character of Ben. and it, But as time goes on, and seeing it more and more times, I definitely appreciate it a lot more as I've gotten older. So <laughs> that's why I have so many copies of this movie lying around all over the place. But anyways, though, with that out of the way, we're going to go straight into our main discussion tonight, which, of course, is the anthology novel, Knights of the Living Dead, an anthology, which is... a short story collection that was edited by Jonathan Mayberry and George A. Romero himself. And the plot summary for this book is, which I am reading off Audible, is 
1968, the world experienced a brand new kind of terror with the debut of George A. Romero's landmark film, Night of the Living Dead. This was something new and terrifying. Since then, zombies have invaded every aspect of popular culture. But it all started on that dreadful night in a remote farmhouse. Knights of the Living Dead returns to that night, to the outbreak, to where it all began. New York Times best-selling author Jonathan Mayberry teams up with the godfather of the Living Dead himself, George A. Romero, to present a collection of all-new tales set during the 48 hours of that legendary outbreak. Now, this short story collection features many short stories by a number of horror authors, including the likes of Brian Keane, Kerry Ryan, Chuck Wendig, Craig Engler, David J. Scow, David Wellington, Isaac Marion, Jay Bonasinger, Joe R. Lansdale, Joe McKinney, John Russo, John Skip, Keith A. R. DeCandido, if I butchered anyone's names, please forgive me, um, <laughs> Max Bralia, Mike Carey, Mira Grant, Neil and Brendan Schusterman, Sandra and Ryan Brown, and as well as stories from both Jonathan Mayberry and George A. Romero themselves. So with that out of the way, like I said before the show, we're going to be doing something a little bit different for this episode. Usually when I do talk about anything Night and Living Dead on the show, I usually go through the plot summary of the film, the TV show, and all that from beginning to end. But since this is a short story collection, and there is about 21 or 22 short stories in it, we're not going to cover all the stories. Because I figured after going reading this book, and if anyone's interested, I want there to be still some surprises in there for readers when they go into it. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a roundtable discussion. So we're going to pick about at least three short stories from the book, and we're going to discuss some in depth and talk about why these short stories out of all the ones that are featured in the book affected us the most. So I know we've all got our little little list together and also some bonus ones, just in case if we all double up on some. But uh, Aaron, which short story from the collection do you want to talk about first? Look, um, it might be a little obvious, but I would love to talk about John Doe by <laughs> our mate, George A. Romero. Yeah, so this is the second story in the anthology. I am surprised it didn't... It's the second one. Yeah, it's the second one. I'm surprised it doesn't open the book because mm. it is literally the most ground of all the ground zeros. Um, it's a, it's it's about two characters primarily. We've got Charlene, Charlie, but that she goes by, and Lewis, who are both morgue attendants, who are the, the, the unfortunate, unfortunate recipients of the very first zombie or ghoul is probably what I'm sure that Romero would refer to him in that kind of part of the timeline. And it's funny what uh, Zach was saying about these movies and any kind of horror franchise coming to them out of order, which is normally absolutely the way I go. Um, this is a collection of <laughs> of stories like the actual set of films themselves in which chronology and, and <laughs> continuity doesn't always matter. And that's okay because we've got stories in here that are genuinely set in 1968 and then you've got ones that obviously are set kind of now-ish. Uh, this particular story, John Doe, is set now-ish and it's about these, yeah, these two these two morgue attendants. Um, Lewis was there when the guy was shot. Uh, he was a homeless man with no name that nobody can really identify who is, the, um, is unfortunately gunned down uh, in a kind of a high-speed pursuit uh, when a, a a car full of uh, people is has come across 
the the Mexican border. It's set in San Diego, uh, being followed by police, and he's gunned down. And they, they end up in the morgue, kind of doing the autopsy and pulling this thing apart. And we get to meet them. Uh, we get to know these characters, and then we know all the way through it because this is a, a Romero thing in a book called Nights of the Living Dead. That at some moment, this this corpse is going to open its eyes. And there was, I can't remember the exact term in it, but there are a really great collection of uh, descriptions throughout this entire book of, the, you know, the kind of creepy eyes that the zombies have. And in this, in, in this particular one, it's like it, the, the zombie opens its eyes at some point and it's like glazed over with some sort of inner body milk. And I found that so gross. <laughs> Yeah, I remember the description very, uh, very vividly because that's one yeah. of the great things about the book is like the how all the different writers mm. describe the zombies and the one yes. line in this short story from Romero that definitely stood out was when the zombie opens his eyes. I believe he writes, and I'm par- paraphrasing this, so forgive me if it's not exactly as it's written. But his eyes were the color of black. His eye pupils were no longer the color of black coffee, but now. They are the color of mocha, milky mocha. I believe that was how he kind of oh, simply you, described it. You know what? I yeah. found it. I've got the book right here. Yeah, so yeah. The yep. irises, once the color yep. of black coffee, had been turned mocha by some deathly internal milk. Oh, yes. Well done, mate. Well done. That's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, So I really like this story for a number of reasons. Firstly, I'm such a Romero junkie that, of course, I remember when this book came out, I, it was a day one purchase for me. And I read that particular story and devoured it in a, in a matter of minutes. It reminded me, it has all of the things that I really personally like about later career Romero, especially his zombie films that a lot of people don't like, is that it's very talky. I actually really like the way that Romero writes dialogue. It feels written, and I mean that in a really good way and so i like the banter between these two characters and the, the the snippets into their backgrounds and where they're coming from and there's always as the best of romero stuff it like has is it's all really super blue collar worker you know these are kind of grunt like you know i love that that his stuff is kind of gr- on the grunt level of of society and so these are two people who are basically are such an odd coupling she's a she's a beautiful bombshell and he's like you know not a beautiful bombshell, but they have this kind of rapport. And it's, and I absolutely loved this particular story, blitzed through it. And the thing is, is that I thought, okay, I closed that story. It's like 12 pages long and I closed it. I was like, okay, well, that was amazing. I wish there was more of that. And turns out <laughs> there was more to come, which was The Living Dead, which with Romero and uh, and, and Daniel Krauss published and released, uh, was it like a couple of years ago? Oh, yeah, um, it was, yeah. And these two characters, and that chapter is in the book and blooms out. And I get to spend a lot more time with these particular characters. The book is like 650 pages long. There's no shortage of them. Um, And I was just thrilled that I got to spend some more time with them. And although at the time I had no way of knowing that there would be a Romero book in in the future after he is dead, which is in and of itself the most George Romero thing you could possibly imagine. And there's another one coming. There's another There's another book coming from the two of them this year, I, I, I believe, or maybe be pushed over to next year, so I can't wait for that. But, um, yeah, I really like this one. It's blue collar to the core. It's got the snappy dialogue. Um, it's got that great moment where it builds to the moment where it, where, it wake, where this thing wakes up. And, um, yeah, what did you all think? Uh, did you remember this one? Uh, is this one of the ones that is it anyone, on anyone else's list? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, but Zach, you go first. What did you think of this story? 
in particular? I think it, it comes back again. I think, again, like the movies and like like all the good books, it's really about the interpersonal. So that those ideas like the blue collar thing, why do you keep going if it's giving you nightmares? Well, the money's better. And I think we, we, can, we can all relate to just wanting to go and do something else, but knowing that if we do it, well, you're going to get paid less. So I'm just going to deal with hating my job. And I think that's that real kind of personal touch in it. But also just like, as Aaron said, the dialogue between the two and, and that nightmare that is used, it's almost, you know, it's the Chekhov's gun of the story. You know it's going to come back and you're just waiting for the moment, as it says. And when it finally happens, and it all ties, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but just the way it comes back in at the end there with that moment where it actually, you know, replicates what's in the, in the nightmare. And you're just like, oh, yeah, that's a good payoff. And I think it's just a, such a satisfying. There's a few stories in here who, who have that Stories aren't who, as much as I think about them, is that? Uh, stories that have that really satisfying payoff. And this is one of them. I think I was just looking at it again here as we're going for it. And it's pretty much like the last line of the story. It just comes back in. And even though she never hears it, it says it. And you're just like, yeah, that's a thing of beauty. Just in that moment there, perfect spot to end. You can imagine what's going on from there. And, yeah, I just think it's a great one. Um, Oh yeah, it's um I really enjoyed this story as well. And especially because I this was the one out of all of them that I was the most excited about because it is from Romero himself. So I was kind of curious to see how the story would turn out. And like you said it before, Aaron, what's interesting about this entire collection is a lot of the stories are set in nineteen sixty-eight, while others are definitely when you sort of well, I listened to the audiobook version of this uh of the novel, and when you hear like the modern stuff you think oh yeah they definitely set it down but it jonathan mayberry in his introduction of the story actually explains why that is for the readers in in the sense that yeah like you'll definitely hear like some are very much in 1968 some are a bit modern but you kind of have to remember night of the living dead doesn't really specify what time it is and when you diary of the dead is actually set at the same time as night of the living dead so I think you kind of have to see it in that context, but it's cool to kind of see how the different how different writers approach it. Like, do they set it in 1968 or set it a bit more modern? But with um, this story in particular, I really enjoyed it a lot. I think it definitely has a lot of the hallmarks of what Romero uh, is known for in this short story, particularly with the uh, the main character who is uh, Hispanic in the story, and of course he deals with some racism from the cops because he believes that the the homeless man john doe wasn't killed by the bullets but was actually something else happened to him and he wants to prove that but the cops said oh well you know good george a romero fashion he experiences racism from the cops because uh the shooters were of course with hispanic as well so they believe that's what happened but he wants to prove that wrong but what's interesting though because like you say in the short story, like it is an interesting pairing of these two characters with the character of uh, uh, Charlene, as you, as she is written, she is a bombshell, but she has a very in the audiobook version, she has a very thick Bronx accent, which definitely gives her off that blue collar vibe. But also at the same time, and I think we we're forgetting about this, is that the story actually intercuts with another story with three other characters who are about a couple of hours later trying to find out where patient zero is like where did this outbreak go back to and their sort of experiences and it's kind of interesting going back and forth between the two but yeah i think the main story in particular is a pretty strong one and of course with charlene and the night her nightmares that she's been having and how 
what she experiences towards the end, and also the final line of the story is a very good one. But I really did enjoy this one a lot. Um, have you guys read uh, The Living Dead by Romero and Krauss? Have you had a chance to I, yet? I haven't yet, but I am going to do a future episode on it within the next, probably either next year or the year after, depending how things go with the show. It, it could it could take a year to read. It's enormous. Uh, it's, it's, an absolute, it's, it's, put it off. it's 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 an absolute doorstopper. And I like I am at a point in my life where I'm like, if it's a bit shorter, it's probably a bit easier for me to read. But I have to at least give this one a crack. And I knew a couple of people who. Um, they didn't love it. Uh, they they were kind of dwarfed by the size of it, to be honest, and kind of gave up. I was absolutely hanging off every damn word of this book, and I thought it was an incredible achievement. And when I say epic, I mean it is truly epic. And um, for you both, I, it comes with my highest recommendation and, and, and for the listeners, and also it, it rewards in, in a series of payoffs that uh, I absolutely was really moved by and also Romero wrote huge chunks of it like he had written a lot of this thing I was under the impression when it was first announced that it was really only the short story that's in Knights of the Living Dead was that was what Romero actually wrote which would equate to what 15,000 words of a like of like a 400,000 word novel it would probably be completely not the case listening to interviews with uh Daniel Krauss and and Susan Romero and Susan or Susanna, I can't quite remember, that. His, his late wife. Um, uh, and it is incredible the way that those stories are interwoven. And there is a hint into the structure of that later book in this story, which is the cross-cutting. And so, which is a, a really, really cinematic device, you know, to, to build suspense. And you can tell that this is written by somebody who is thinking about how you would edit the film adaptation of it. It's a, And it's a natural thing for a filmmaker to write that way. Wes Craven writes that way when he did his one book, Fountain Society. Toby Hooper, when he wrote his one book, which is, oh God, what was the name of it? I can't remember. It was... What's well, a Midnight Movie? Midnight Movie. It, it is the yeah. exact same thing. There are all these cross-cutting techniques. Midnight Movie is all like texts and and it's, a, you know, the, the, when you, I can never say the word. I'm a writer, so I don't have to say it aloud, but I can never say that word when a, a story is told from all different kind of media perspectives. Carrie's written that way. What do you call it? Epistolary. Epistolary. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Zach. Not, not just, a, not just. Yes, this is yes. an epistolary novel, children. <laughs> I should have turned to the teacher. <laughs> I just can't say the word. I just can't say it for the life of me. It's one of those things that that haunts me for forever. Um, but no, it's an incredible book, and it's really, really rich. And um, uh, but also, I reading the John Doe story, I get super strong Diary of the Dead vibes. It reminds me really strongly of the opening of Diary of the Dead, which is kind of this great news footage reel of like this news reporter live on the scene goes wrong. It's just a. It feels, I know this sounds silly to say because it's written by George Romero, but it gave me such Romero, the warm and fuzzies, that it was a joy to revisit it for the purpose of this podcast, I must say. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I was looking this up before and I wanted to clarify before I actually said it on this, uh, when this book was released, I believe it was uh, July 11th, 2017. It came out literally a week before George A. Romero's death. Wow. So it's kind of because he passed away on July 17th. So literally one week after the release of this book. So it's definitely like I can imagine anyone who's reading this book, particularly that story, knowing that he is 
now God would definitely feel that, like knowing that this was one of the last things he worked on before his passing. It is such an interesting thing. And look, I'm all for it. Like, I, well, I'm, it's up to the estates of those who pass away about what is done with people's material. And I'm sure that Romero wants this stuff to be out there. It's not like Harper Lee Ghost at a Watchman type type situation where you're oh, like, yeah. this feels sussed as all get out. Um, it's it's a, It would be the type of thing that it has the support of his family and, he, and his wife, Romero's wife. But it is a really weird thing, uh, you know, to have the voices uh, and the work of those who have passed away continue on after they've after they're gone. I remember reading Mike, like a couple of Michael Crichton books that came out after he passed away, um, some of which were complete, like uh, like um, Dragon Teeth, and then some of which were only partially done, like Micro, which is a great book if anyone is looking for a really good techno thriller. Micro by Michael Crichton is an absolute banger of a book. But it's just a weird feeling. It's a weird type of thing. And, and you know, Stephen King taps into this in a, a couple of his books, like Lisey's story about what happens to my manuscripts after I die and how much of it do you want to hold on to and how much of it do you want to release and how much do the rabid fans like me want people to release this stuff that's kind of sitting in these vaults come hell or high water. It's just a really, really interesting thing. And because Romero kind of deals with mortality all the time in his works, it just has this meta context to it that just, it all just feels right. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. And uh, Zachary, what is your first uh, short story you would like to talk about from them? Uh, I think I mentioned this to Aaron. Just try that in English. I mentioned this to Aaron um, the other day in just chatting. It might have been yesterday. But I think the one, it's actually right after this one, is Mercy Kill. And, Ooh, that's um, a good one. It's a good yeah, one. Yeah, it was a good one. And I just, it was just such fun as well. And in, in reading that one, and it starts off, you go, okay, you've got the guy, he's gone in, you know, everyone's sort of gone. And, and oh, But then again, you've got this, I, I always love how in a lot of these movies, you've got the authority figures who are just bastards or the people who've assumed control. Maybe that's why they're able to do it because they have that bastard mentality. And you see that in all the movies and in the books. And so he's here pitting against this one person who he's got this prior beef with. And I thought the twist was so good in that. So basically, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit. He comes back from the war. Um, he's never been able to finally, you know, sort of make this this his girlfriend his girlfriend and get past the kind of the love triangle with this guy who's assumed control, the, the police officer. And um, when he goes there, he thinks she's dead. These guys come in. His only way of surviving is, like, making himself smell like a zombie. So he's covering himself in guts and chewing on a foot. So it's like it's inside him. So he's eating that because of some old war story he heard while he was over there. And so the the beef with the, this this cop and himself is so bad that instead of just shooting him dead, the cop's like, no, we're going to have some sport with him. We're going to bring him back. And then it turns out his girlfriend's there. How it how it plays from there is just so much. Um, oh, I don't know if Schadenfreude is the right word, but the retribution in it and just the twists and how it all comes out is just it's just such a fun read. But also it's it's just it just ties in so nicely, and I just love it. Like even those little things, like the little giveaways. Like I knew as soon as I saw you gnawing on that foot that you weren't dead because you always stick your pinkies out when you eat corn and no zombie sticks its pinkies out when it eats a foot. Like, and I just love that kind of sense of humour that you get it from the movies as well at times, I think. Was it Survival of Dead that was really, really funny, I thought, at times? And um, I don't know whether that was a, like a zombie land influence on that movie maybe, but I, I, I enjoyed that. Um, 
but yeah, and you, you see it throughout the movies at various times. It, these really humorous parts, but then this book, you kind of don't expect that little little payoff and that that little giveaway, that little bit of human insight into the relationship between these characters and how it's all paid off in the end is just so um so rewarding. So I like that. And, you know, <laughs> the idea of the mercy kill it, it plays out. You know, he he thinks she's about to provide the mercy kill for him, and then you know this cop who they eventually surprise in his own thing are they going to give him the mercy killer or are they going to make sure that he suffers greatly and oh it's a horror story and so <laughs> you know i really just i just enjoyed that i love that kind of uh the implications of that as well so yeah oh yeah that was a really good one i really enjoyed that story a lot what was interesting um you know going through all the different stories is the tone of different stories some of them definitely go much more funnier others are going for truly disturbing others kind of do genre mashups as well mm-hmm. and it's kind of interesting like this one in particular definitely is going for that sort of more humorous approach especially with the main character of uh, marvin who as you said before zach is a soldier from, who just got back from vietnam and he's in this situation where he he's surrounded by zombies has to try to figure out exactly what to do so what is the idea he he comes up with is basically trying to make himself smell like a zombie gets blood and guts all over him and starts acting like a zombie so it falls up at first it doesn't quite work but eventually it does and it's really fun to see how he tries to pull that off and especially since when he's actually around human characters especially now because with the sheriff character who's a complete dickhead in the story (laughs) like even when he could easily just say oh i'm just acting like a zombie but he knows that with this guy but also the zombies around him if he gets rid of that facade he knows he's done for either way and i think it's just a really fun story and i really enjoyed the twist when you find out that the girlfriend who we thought died at the beginning is still very much alive and i love their little relationship together in the story it's a really fun little uh read that one there's something about yeah. this one uh, look I, I i know that the author who i haven't read before i know he's from texas um and there is there is a line at the end and it's again it's similar to the other story that you point um that you were talking about in terms of just having a really good punchline, like a really good moment there. And I love a good punchline. I cut my teeth reading Robert Block. I love a last second, dick, like stab in the side and twist the blade. Give it to me. I love it. Like, And I, I can just hear the Texan accent dripping off this story. Like there's a line at the end where he's like, <laughs> I'd run plum out of mercy. And I was like, I am not doing this story justice by reading it in my accent. That is a line that is designed for the Texan drawl. <laughs> and I'm not even going to attempt it, even though I will do it later when I'm alone walking around my kitchen. <laughs> uh, but if this one as well just gives me just that kind of really great warm, and it's it's the Vietnam stuff. It, it really is. It gives me that kind of a great paperbacks from hell vibe that I just really love. And it's it's in this particular story in bucket loads and it's a it's a type of story that you can smell and it smells bad and that's the best bloody thing ever (laughs) yeah i guess uh yeah i guess i'll go with my first first short story that i really enjoyed from the book and it's one that if i had to describe the short story i would guess guess i would describe it as basically the telltale heart with a zombie (laughs) and that of course is snaggletooth Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> this one, which of course was uh, written by, and I have his name down here somewhere. Where is it? Oh, Max Brower. 
Now, essentially, this story starts off with uh, a guy by the name of Bo, and he is having an affair with a woman. And so they basically decide that they're going to murder her husband so they can get together. He and the husband go out hunting. He shoots him, but does it in a way so it makes it look like he either had an accident or committed suicide. And then, as that's all going down, uh, the sheriff, Farp, is trying to investigate it. So they pretty much cleared up everything to make sure that this doesn't look anything like a murder. So they play it all off. And then later on, when he, Bo is back with the, with the woman he's having an affair with, like uh, the sheriff comes around and they have a bit of a chat and the sheriff's a bit sus about like, why is he over at the wife's house? And of course they come up with a good explanation, but then the sheriff tells him, uh, so we went back to the site where the body is and the body is gone. And as all this is happening, and as they're out on the on the front of the house chatting, uh, Bo sees a figure coming towards the house, and it is the the dead body of the man he just killed. But what I really liked about this story, because A, it really plays up with his mindset about what is going through after he kills the man. Like, at first he feels guilty about what he did, but also he's like, you know, relief because now he and the wife can get together. But now, once he sees the body and realizes it is the husband, he, he starts, it starts to mess with him and starts to make him feel guilty, hence the telltale heart mm-hmm. comparison. But also a key thing, and I what I really liked about the writing of this short story, it felt very Stephen king to me, in terms of the little details, particularly with the snaggletooth, because the husband has a snaggletooth that's a bit rotten, and he's very put off, and our main character is put off by that tooth, and then once he kills the husband, he actually steals the tooth, because, and also another key detail is that the husband keeps going on about, because also Bo, like Marvin in the previous story we talked about, he's also a soldier from Vietnam, and he... And the husband keeps talking about, oh, when you were over there, did you see other soldiers who, like, cut off people's ears and put them around on necklaces and stuff like that? And uh, Bo kind of bro- brushes it off, but then he decides to do that with the tooth. And as the zombie is getting closer and closer to him in the house, and that tooth is hitting him on the chest and everything, like, it's he he's just starts to panic and basically blurts out, everything that happened and of course the zombie attacks and i i really enjoyed the story a lot mainly because of those telltale heart comparisons and is what made it such a fun uh listen to in the audiobook form but also like i said uh max browler really has a lot of stephen king influence in his writing like i said with the certain details or how characters talk and just and just providing a much more richer world in which this story is set uh uh zach what did you think of this story yeah, I, I really like this one as well. It's one of the ones I was I was thinking it might be on the list, and I think the, the Telltale Hearts thing is so obvious in it as well. But I don't tend to read a lot of short story anthologies as well. I tend to just you know read sort of novels and novellas or listen to them on the way to work in the car. What I really liked about a lot of these stories, this one is really exemplary of, is they have that kind of twist thing that you taught short stories should have when you you know you're going through at school, and maybe you don't see it all the time, but. It's one of those things you'll say, oh, this short story has to have a twist in when you first learn in the genre. And this one, like, 
as well as being so telltale hearty, I always almost think it's kind of got this Roald Dahl sort of vibe as well, the way it ties up at the end of the short stories there where it's like, oh, and then again, it's just, it's so neatly done. There's no loose ends. There's nothing. It's this, but there's, there's also this implication. It finishes exactly when it has to. And so obviously with the... um you mentioned he starts thinking about what else can happen. He's got this tooth and he starts thinking, yeah, well, the insurance money is going to come in maybe. This is so easy to get away with. I'm not even going to need the wife around at all. I can just do what I want with the money and he thinks he can take it all. So, you know, those kind of those conflicting kind of agendas coming into play as well. And then as it all unfolds, it's just it's beautifully chaotic, I think. You know, everything sort of coincides together on that patio and it's just, yeah, it's it's a great one. And even that those early moments in the story where he first takes a policeman out there and he's he's having to lie about how he's got blood on his fingers. It's oh it's splattered and oh I tried to give him CPR and but you've already just said you didn't check on him because half his face was gone. These various little things coming into play and you said that's the Telltale Heart and and the other thing whenever I've heard Telltale Heart, I think of that Simpsons episode. Um, oh yeah, the Telltale Heart <laughs> one as well. And it, I guess that's showing my generation. But um, yeah, I, I I really did enjoy this story. It was one of the ones I think. Yeah, this one was in, was in the car, and then last bit of the listener on the treadmill at the gym on on audio. But it was just like, just really immensely satisfied with the story and myself at that moment in life when it came to an end. It was just like this was great. So yeah, there was there were some really strong stories in this book. So yeah, thank you for getting us to read it. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about you, Arab? What did you think of this one? Oh, look, I loved it. Um, and I loved it for all the same reasons. This uh, this is, again, the Poe element is completely there. I was getting strong Stephen King vibes as well. And it, uh, Zach, it's so astute that you should say Roald Dahl because I was thinking this is a story that could have just come out of like, um, it could have come out of Tales for the Unexpected or Switch Bitch. Yeah. Uh, it has got that perfectly neat, Roald Dahl meets Robert Block kind of domestic drama gone wrong, uh, kind of I'm going to screw over my spouse at, at the end of the world and, and how could I possibly not get away with the comeuppance type story that I just absolutely love. Um, uh, look, I, I don't have much more to add to it than what you guys have, but suffice to say I, I read it not on a, not on a treadmill. That's for, that's for certain. But in my bed the other night with the blankie pulled up nice and high and, and it gave me, um, it actually, the, the, again, it, the combination of Stephen King vibes, Poe, Block and Dull, it may, and, it, and it's only because I just finished reading it. It reminded me of Coco by Peter Straub as well. So it was just, um, I, I'm, in my mind, it's a crossover with now the, the Peter Straub universe as well. So which, which only makes me happier. <laughs> and uh Arab, what's your second short story you would like to talk about? All right, look, I'll um <clears throat> I'll preface it by saying I know the author, so I, I obviously went straight to it. Um and uh but I <laughs> I really loved Williamson's Folly by David J. Scow. Um David J. Scow being one of the literally one of the forefathers of the splatterpunk genre. Um, literally coined the word splatterpunk and, and it is in the dictionary to this day. Like it's just such an achievement. And I really liked this story because unlike a lot of the other particular stories which play loosey-goosey with the timing or are set in one one either in 1968 or they're set in present time, this one is absolutely set on the night. The the It's not a comet. They make a point to say it's not a comet. It's not, it's not a meteorite. It's basically a piece of space debris that's coming down. 
which is that which is that part of the canon that no one likes to acknowledge was there in the beginning because it, we drop it from the first film on. It's just kind of mentioned in passing on all those TV screens that something has gone down. It could potentially have something to do with it. But David J. Scow, because he's such a rat bag, is like, ah, uh-uh, George, not letting you off the hook. I'm going to write a whole short story about that throwaway line. And this is something that is living and breathing the 1960, the, the, the 60s vibe to the extent that it actually feels like the 1950s. This feels like the blob. It feels mm. like it came from outer space. It's got that massive small town throwback kind of a, the, 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 the shrapnel comes down. It blows up the local hardware store. I think we're in, where are we in? Are we in, we're in Nebraska. Um, and uh, we've got, and the, the, I love the way that David J. Scow writes as well because he writes kind of sarcastically, but also he uses the sarcasm and a little bit of snark to offset really grotesque stuff. There's a sequence in here. Basically, the, this this uh, bit of shrapnel has hit the ground. People are getting up and, and marching about uh, when they should be dead. There are all these people who are already dead in the morgue who are waking up, and we get like a little paragraph each into their backstory, and one of them is a baby um, still with its umbilical cord attached, and, uh, and you're like, if that baby by the end of the story isn't crawling after someone, I'm going to riot. And lo and behold, it is happening. Um, and it's this great thing because he describes the umbilical cord kind of dragging across the ground as it's coming for him. Yeah, it, it follows the story basically of, of a number of people, but it's the sheriff of this small kind of tiny four-light um, four town, like 25 miles from anywhere else in the middle of who knows where, Nebraska. And then we've got the, the local doctor and we've got the sheriff and a bunch of other people kind of watching around. But it's worth it for that that dead baby sequence, I must say. <laughs> so this thing, this this particular story, I really liked it because it really embraced the feel of old school kind of pulpy 1950s, 60s fiction from the time in a way that the original film actually doesn't. The, 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 the original film is really kind of feels contemporary because it's dealing with such contemporary themes and it's laced with such, you know, kind of uh, irony this has none of that. It's like, no, I'm going to take the opportunity to embrace the pulpy background that's alluded around the original Romero film and is absolutely putting, Scout's just putting his finger on and going, all right, we're going to do this. And it's got a great ending, uh, this particular story, because which ties back into the original film. It's just a really nifty piece of fiction and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. What did you guys think? Is this one on anyone's list or do you remember this one? Uh, this one wouldn't be on my personal list, but I did enjoy this uh, short story and listening to the audiobook version. And you're right, Aaron, what I really most enjoyed about this one, particularly from the writing, but also how the uh, the narrator narrates it, it really gives off that sort of 50s B-movie vibe, especially yeah. for the first two halves until it gets a bit more serious towards the end so it can tie itself back to Night of Living Dead. But even listening to it, it does have that sense of sarcasm and humor to it and yeah i mean it really is a story that embraces the b-movie aesthetic with its story and i think that's what i really enjoyed a lot about this one and you're right though because like night and living dead even though it could have easily have been like you know your 50s 60s b sci-fi horror film it doesn't it's very serious in how it approaches the story but this one definitely does embrace that and it's definitely the most enjoyable out of all the stories in that like not to say i didn't enjoy any of the stories but this one in terms of a an att- on an enjoyable level it's definitely one of the more enjoyable 
uh, stories mainly because of those that B movie vibe within the story. Yeah, am, am I correct in thinking um, that the the original film was it had a different title at some point? It had probably had oh, multiple yes. titles. I don't know how to say. Is it Anubis and a Night of Anubis? It, what yeah. is it? Yeah, it was uh, one title was Night of Anubis, but then they decided to change it to Night of the Flesh Eaters. But wow. then they found out there was another movie called The Flesh Eaters, so they changed the title. But they forgot to put the copyright on it. Hence, the movie went into public domain, and hence why this show exists. <laughs> this is this is David J. Scow saying basically, look, if you had called it Anubis from the get go and remembered that copyright, I this story wouldn't exist. <laughs> and, and and just knowing David, he's such a rat bag in the most delightful way. Um, it makes me really really happy that he totally is just nailing it down on this because it also. But by the end, you're exactly right. It starts off cheeky and it's really, really sardonic in its humour all the way through. But then it shifts in the final third. And that last moment is actually really hitting the feels um, because it's a very, very sad note to end on. And it kind of seems to, to segue really beautifully into the tone of Night of the Living Dead. Oh, for sure, for sure. But uh, Zachary, what did you think of this one? Yeah, I think uh, this one initially didn't stick out to me so much because of the way it was told at first as well because it really is more of that bird's eye view of the town coming to plot and it slowly narrows its field or its lens, I guess is probably a better way to put it. Uh, but, yeah, like that scene with the um, the baby coming out of the, the, the jar and, and trailing across the floor, that was one that stuck with me as well. I just Googled it for the actual sentence there when you were mentioning it. Not Googled it, sorry. opened up in the Kindle app. And... Um, yeah, it's, it's it's so good because, it, like you said, it starts here. You've got, okay, we've got this happening, we've got this happening. This is all very kind of bird's eye view of things. And then as it sort of comes in towards the end, that sad moment with the, the, the sheriff and his brain and stuff like that. But, yeah, no, um, absolutely enjoyed it. Probably can't add too much more other than that. But, yeah, it's another really great story in here as well. So, yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. It's a really fun and enjoyable story and definitely one worth reading for sure. Uh, Zach, what is your second pick for this? Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm kind of debating uh, what I picked for second pick, but I think one might get picked by uh, someone else anyway. Um, so I'm going to go with, uh, what is it called? I just had the contents open, the actual title, which would be a smart thing to do, A Dead Girl Named Sue, which yes. is the second story in the book, and it, it's The Arrest. Um, it's by Craig E. Engler. And um, I just want to add that there were so many of these authors in here who I hadn't read before, and particularly authors who you see on bigger name horror, horror books as well or, or genre books. So it was really interesting to kind of get that insight into some of them. But this is another author I hadn't read. But I just loved the feel of this, this rat bag who is evidently pretty dodgy but hasn't been able to be stuck up on anything because, you know, family connections in the small town coupled with many more ratbag characters. I think there's probably one character who comes out within his integrity intact. He's the one who he's like, I can't do it. I can't face my wife after doing this, but gets arrested. And they, they all know this guy. They, they blame him for all of the town's ills pretty much. And um, they've got him there and they're going to expose him to the zombies or the ghouls. And it's just a really great sequence. Like that sequence where they've got him in the, in the back of the police car and as they're sort of heading off there, there are people pulling up, talking to the officer who he's deputising. He's like, why would you deputise them? They're scumbags, you know. You're better off deputising me. And they're like, you're a scumbag too. <laughs> he's like, yeah, but I'm not as scummy as these guys. But some of those sentences in there that like 
the, the punctuation with the kicks between each word of the sentence where you can really, especially on the audio, you've really got that feel of this guy in the back of the car just pounding the seat, just completely ineffectually trying to get his point across and eventually just having to face what was going to happen was going to happen. And I think what, what you know, the world over, oh, ever since probably Hurricane Katrina, you know, you always think people would help each other in these situations, but we all know people just immediately resort to their worst person and go about themselves and I think this story really emphasizes that with now's our chance and even you've got the people in the cop shop who are like no 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 we want to watch this and and I loved it I I thought yeah that was just in the second story and I was like okay yeah this is this is really going to be fun because it was two really strong opening stories and yeah I, I enjoyed it a lot at that point so yeah. Oh yeah, it's uh this one I think is probably the most well known out of all the stories in this collection, and so much so that the story was adapted for an episode of the TV show Creep Show. So it was there, and I will be covering that episode for a future edition of the show. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this one a lot. I, like I already knew of the story because of the Creep Show connection, but I thought it was just a really fun story, and also one that. Uh, the character, I believe his name was Calvin, our base, who is a very despicable character. And yeah, Cl- Cliven. Cliven, sorry, yes, yeah, Cliven. Right. Uh, he is a very despicable character, and you just immediately hate him in this story. And you could, and like he goes on about, like, oh, I didn't do these things. Like, everyone, you know, everyone always accuses me of everything. And you're just sitting there. And you're just going, yeah, you definitely did all these things. You definitely murdered that little girl. And your politician father is one who's getting you off on all this stuff. And I love that this is a good comeuppance story to someone like that. And also not only uh, with the with the dad of the girl, even though he wasn't, he didn't want to stick around to watch it happen, but other people who were also affected by this character were there wanting to watch all this go down with him being killed and eaten by uh, Sue, who was the murdered girl. So that was really, like, it's a really fun cup up and story, but also just has probably one of the most despicable characters in any of the stories that are in the book. And uh, Aaron, what did you think of this one? Well, I love this one because this is one of the perils of the short story and also of the short story anthology is that sometimes you don't have the space to really grow enough to really fucking hate a character, but this story absolutely does it so efficiently. And I just love how much I hate this dude. I will tell you though, I didn't know this was adapted for creep show. I didn't know that. I totally didn't know that. I've only seen the first season and I need to, I'm looking forward to, to watching. I've just recently uh, got shutter. So I need to total. That's my homework for the day. I am actually. That's legitimately what I'm going to do. The moment that we hang up, I'm going to make myself a pot of coffee. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch Creep Show. I didn't know that, so I'm psyched. Totally psyched to to know. I had that. no idea either. Well, yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, and I'm also going to do this for the same episode. Is it's not the only Night of the Living Dead themed episode on the show because I believe it's either the second or third season. Actually, this might have been from the second season. There's an episode called Night of the Living uh, Late Show, which actually features clips from Night of the Living Dead weaved into the actual story, hence why I'm covering it for the show, and also going to be doing it on A Dead Girl Named Sue, from what I've gathered based on what I've read about it, even though I haven't seen the episode yet, is it's actually shot in black and white, this episode. So it's set, it has that tone of Night of the Living Dead, but it also overtly makes itself known that, oh yeah, this is set around the same time as the original film. 
Oh, that's so, so cool. And uh, it is also worth mentioning as well, just once we talk about Creepshow, that my favourite episode of season one was written by David J. Scow, which is called The Finger, uh, which is like the finger that grows into a... I'm sure it's called The Finger. Maybe it's... No, is it called The Finger? I think it is called The Finger, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, well, it's the one with like... Uh, it's it's a little creature called Bob and it's running around and it's it's got that absolute sarcastic tone that Scow stuff has uh, just in spades and I just really loved loved that story i I'm, I'm stoked i can't wait to watch the creep show this afternoon it's exactly what i'm going to be doing <laughs> but uh yeah this one's a really good story like i said it's definitely one of the more well-known ones in the standout hence why it's been adapted into an episode for creep show but uh yeah this one's definitely worth a read as well now if anyone who knows me knows i love a good genre mashup particularly Ooh. with or at least having kind of a mixture of ideas so for my pick I'm going with pages from a notebook found inside a house in the woods. Now I'm, I'm cheering because this is one of mine and I've been tossing up as to which one I was going to choose. So you've made the decision for me. This is good. <laughs> what I love about this one is it's a, uh, it was written by, uh, let me just find out who it Brian is. Keen. Brian, uh, Brian Keane. Yes, that's right. Brian Keane. Uh, this, uh, what I like about this one, it starts off being a crime story where a bunch of characters decide to do a heist, but it does it in an interesting way. Instead of doing a heist at a bank and whatnot, they decide to do a heist at a comic book convention. And so they dress up as clowns, as characters, so that way nobody knows exactly who they are. And when they actually, and I love the part where they go in up to some of the workers there and they hold up the place. It's like, the workers are like, nobody does a heist at a comic book convention (laughs) and then so they do that and then of course that's when the zombie aspect comes into the story so they decide to go on the run they get to a house in the woods however though and this is the thing that i was caught off guard by and i love that they included this is that they're not the only ones in the house they just happen to go into a house that happens to be haunted by a poltergeist. So not only do they have to be wary of the zombies outside, they also have to be wary of the violent spirit of a woman who lives within the house. And I love the fact that this story starts off as three different genres and actually surprisingly and smartly from Brian Keane really wove into each other really well. Like it doesn't feel totally uneven they actually wove in together quite well uh, throughout the story and it's very well written the dialogue is great uh the characters are really interesting and of course it's like a lot of the short stories this one's written in the first person so it's like i said as the title of the story suggests it is being written by someone who's experiencing it and it's just a really good story and i was just really kind of surprised by the turn in the third act when you find out because they kind of start experiencing little things. Like one of the characters, he wakes up screaming. You think, oh, there's a zombie in the room. And it's that someone sat at the end of my bed. And then you hear the description of there's a, an impression of the bed of someone sitting there. And then it rises up. And then, of course, other stuff tends to happen. Like things being thrown out uh, in the kitchen. And it is just a really cool, fun story. And the fact that it mashes so many different genres is what really made me enjoy it so much. But uh, Aaron, since you had this one on your list, uh, what did you enjoy most about this story? Well, it's all the things that you've said. I love that it starts off like an Elmore Leonard story and ends mm-hmm. up being like poltergeist town by way of 
by way of Romero. Um, I know Brian, Brian writes really well. The Rising is a terrific a zombie novel that anyone who's interested in the genre absolutely has to read The Rising. Um, it's a it's a bloody brilliant book. And um, I love this one too because uh, it's also, I love the idea of, of, of holding up a comic book um, convention. It's just so stupid. It's so stupid. Like, you know, these guys are just dumb as a bag of hammers, but I kind of love them for their stupidity and that they gave it a good shot. And I've only ever been to conventions and I see Brian all the time and things like that. And so I know exactly what this, this place smells like. The nerd is strong in there and I know these are my people. I, and I just love the idea of them dressed up as clown coming in, clowns coming in and it just, uh, it, it really made me really, really happy. But I just loved that moment where you're like, holy shit, this is a ghost story. And there's something about that really, really works for me because it taps in. When you look at the tapestry of the entire thing in this sitting within the zombie collection, the idea of what happens to the spirit and and that it can linger, uh, even after the body starts to take on a life of its own that has nothing to do with, with our spirits, there's something really interesting about that as a, as a, as a, on a kind of, existential level like if we get bitten or if we die and are reanimated in our, our corpses what happens to our spirit is kind of what this book is saying and it's kind of hopeful because it suggests that it is disembodied from the body which is also really really freaky because if i die and my ghost is in the house but i'm watching my body march around eating people I might be dead and in the afterlife, but I'm going to fucking kill myself out of guilt. You know what I mean? It's, um, so there's something really, really, really interesting about the idea of spirituality being in this universe, which I thought was super cool. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's funny, though, like, I think earlier in the book, like, I had heard another story and I thought, like, even though it's not exactly the same thing, I kept thinking to myself, you know what, I should come up with There's an interesting... Why hasn't somebody not paired up zombies and ghosts? Like, what would you do if you yeah. were a go- you died, you became a ghost, and you saw your zombie self shambling around? But oh, maybe I should come up. I could do it something with that. And then, of course, uh, Brian Key later on in the book writes that exact same story. For well, he does a pretty good job with that. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's one of those situations. And and like I'm seeing Brian this year, and I'll absolutely punch him in the shins for it. But I'm like, why didn't I think of that? It's such a good idea, honestly. It's just one of those kind of perfect, perfect little pitches. It's it's just a, a really well told, smart, well written mm. story. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think this one in particular, it definitely has the most cinematic potential as well. Totally. Like if any if any story could be adapted into a film or an episode of Creepshow, it's definitely this one for sure. But uh, Zachary, what did you think of this one? Yeah, same kind of thing. I, I, this was actually when I was saying I'm tossing up which one to talk about. This this was the other one I, I was going to mention. And um, this is going to sound silly to say, like that, that Brian Keane doesn't get enough credit because everyone knows who Brian Keane is. But like he's a master storyteller. This story is so friggin' good. Even the fact that, like, I kind of didn't realize how funny he could be as well. Like, because I've read a few of his books, and like, you know, The Rising is dark, man, and it's it's amazingly good. But it's 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 a pretty nasty, nasty zombie story. Um, Ghoul as well is it's a dark, dark book. Ghoul is, that's a brilliant book. It is, isn't it? Right. Uh, I think I've got two copies here somewhere one's like the leisure paperback and one's like a, the one that's got the they made a movie didn't they I haven't seen it they but did, yeah. um 
it's almost like he's channeling Jeff Strand in the opening sequences of this this short story. And I was like, hang on, is this is this? Oh, it is Brian Keane. Okay, cool. And then as as it slowly comes to the ghost story aspect of things and and how that unfolds as well, because there had been a couple of other kind of cabin in the woods kind of stories in in the book, which you know makes sense. Um, but yeah, his his execution of this was just so good, and it really makes you realise the credit he receives is deserved and, you know, how good a writer he is and that he probably outside horror, more people should be mentioning, even though he's so credited with, you know, for the zombie movement in horror literature as books, I guess. But the range, I guess, is probably the way to put what what he shows here. And I think that, yeah, it, it was a really, really enjoyable story to read. And the, the clowns, that that's that first scene where the first clown is is there, underground and he's like is he getting up or you know these kind of things so i just yeah it was good it was just incredibly engaging incredibly fun story yeah i'm just waffling now yeah it was really good <laughs> <laughs> yeah this one is just a pure fun from beginning to end it's definitely one of the standout stories for me just mainly for its originality and the fact that it mashes so many different uh subgenres but uh Aaron, what is your third and final story for you would like to talk about? But if you have any honourable mentions, you're more than welcome to shout a few to, few out. I'm, I'm freaking out because I thought that uh, you picking out that story was going to make it easier for me, but now I'm flip-flopping. I'm flip-flopping. What am I going to commit to? What's it going to be? I know you're all hanging by bated breath. All right, I'll give you, I'll give you my honourable mention, okay? Yep. Lansdale's Dead Man's Curve is fun as all get out. Oh, yeah. Like, it is one hell of an opener. Three cheers for any book that features someone on horseback with a lawnmower blade chopping heads off zombies uh, or hitching a dead body to a tractor and dragging it around to, as bait and and also turning your, you know, you know, the dreaded Dead Man's Curve into your one way to salvation. You know, it's just a, an absolute banger of an opener and i can absolutely see why maybe was like all right we're opening with this one gents <laughs> like we're going to be going with this one so that's a that's an absolute great start to the anthology so i wanted to talk about that one but i wanted to jump in and talk about jimmy j baxter's last best day on earth which oh, is yeah. by by john skip okay so and i'm laughing even just thinking about it so look i'm going to preface this by saying, I met John Skip once, uh, the last time I was in the States, and uh, we'd been Facebook buddies for a while, and we tried to catch up a number of times, and I've been a, a John Skip fan since I was a kid. One of the, the first things I ever read were some of those early Splatterpunk books and and collections like uh, like Silver Scream and, and, you know, Book of the Dead. And so Skip has been in my periphery all my life, and I love his fictions, him and the, the, the Spick and Spectre, the... the, the Skip and Spectre books are just absolutely brilliant animals. The light at the end is great. Anyway, it's like, mate, I'm in town. I'm in LA. I want to meet you. Let me take you out for lunch. And he's like, hell yeah, man. Let's do it. (laughs) Anyway, I went out for lunch. I took him out. John Skip has an energy about him. 
that is 1000% this story to a T. It is the most gloriously, almost spiritualistic chaos I have ever experienced in, in my life. He, he got me into his car, which was just this absolute, like it had been through the wars. Like it had come back from Vietnam, this car. It had battle wounds and we drove around town. He was taking me to all these spots. He took me to a video store and we just went through and talked about movies for three hours. It was brilliant. And it was just, I remember walking away from that day going, my life has changed. My life has changed. And uh, because not just because of the way that, um, yeah, that he, the, the, the things that we did, but the way he was telling me stories was just like, I'm going to tell you one thing, but I'm really telling you something else at the exact same time. And this story does the exact same thing. So we've got basically a, an absolute lone wolf terrorist, domestic terrorist in the making who has waited for the end of the world to unleash on every minority that he's ever just hated and ragged on throughout his entire life. And he's like, my time to shine has come. And he takes absolute advantage of it. Guns blazing, you know, American flag waving, uh, shooting up. Uh, and look, it starts off like, okay, so we're going to get kind of like a rednecky kind of character here. I'm sure I'm going to learn to love him. But then there are moments there where he'll drop something. I'm like, what the hell did he just say then? And then it just digs deep into its homophobia, into its anti-Semitism, into its like nationalistic kind of tendencies. It, you know, it, it ends up being this absolute fascist kind of <laughs> disgusting, vile, SS aspiring, um, hate hate anyone from any other country, hilarious, hilariously offensive diatribe that uh, that just absolutely pays off massively in a, in a quick comeuppance at the very, very end there. And so I just wanted to, it just it really in terms of like the book, this one stood out like a pair of dog's balls in a, in a great way, just in terms of it being full-on, hardcore, hilarious satire that when you stop and you think about it and, you know, at the end of the day you go, wow, this has really said something about what we're living in right now. And that to me is the spirit of Romero embodied. So that's why I wanted to highlight this one. Oh, definitely, definitely. I really enjoyed this one a lot. And like you said at the beginning, as we're introduced to this character who... It's probably the second most despicable character in the entire book. Yes. Like, I think, okay, this is a regnet guy, but as the story progresses, and it's not like he'll, he'll drop casual homophobia, but then <laughs> it just gets more and more overt to the point it's like, oh, this dude is a full-blown, white power-loving, nationalist fascist, and he's, like you say, he's using this opportunity with the zombies to kind of just do whatever the hell he wants. And one of the first things he wants to do is like, I'm going to go shoot up a mosque yes. and kill all yeah. the Muslims. Not about zombies. It's like, oh, I can go do this stuff now, which it kind of is a reflection of this Times story. Even though this story came out back in 2017, in a lot of ways, it is very, like all great Romero stuff, it Perfect. is very of the time and timely as well, especially what's going on in America right now. So one of my favorite things about this story is the very final line, like at the end, because he meets this woman at a funeral and they was like, why don't you come with me? And we'll go shoot up a mosque. And she's like, oh yeah, let's go do it. But then you find out the twist is like, she is not for any of these views and she kills them. It's like, you fascist piece of shit. And then one of my favorite probably one of my favorite final lines in this entire book. And he basically, as he's sitting there dead, it's like, oh, 
no heaven, nothing. And then he's, he think, oh, he's just dead. That's it. But then he starts and he says, but it's getting warm though. So basically what the story implies is like, oh, you do, you're definitely going straight to hell. That's why it's getting warm mm-hmm. right about now. And I thought that was a pitch perfect way to end the story. But uh, Zachary, what did you think of this one? Yeah, same. I think like, like Aaron at, at the start, he, the guy starts talking. He's talking about how the, the zombies come and it's just the guy ambling up the street and he's sort of, oh, back off, you know, I don't want to hurt you. And then as he slowly starts to realize what's happened and he just, it just really lets you know who he is. And I think, I think it might even be on, on the Audible. Um, one of the first reviews you see is a one star and it mentions the, the racism and the homophobia as why this was necessary. And I was just like, okay, but show me you didn't actually get the story or didn't finish the story mm. without showing me that. And I think it, it's it's really it opens a really interesting discussion about how do we address this stuff if we can never address it, um, which mm. I don't want to go into that kind of in-depth thing, but it, it's something that is there because this story is very much saying, fuck this guy. And- oh, yeah. And you know it's um it's just it's it's one of the, it's one of the standouts it's it's one of the very interesting stories. It is a, a great deal of fun as well as much as like because as he's doing these horrible things, you can see people are already knowing people are going to do these horrible things and they're prepared for it. Like he rocks up to, is it uh, the Black Power guys? I'm thinking off the top of my head have yeah. have also set up ready for people like him, and you're yeah. just like. Yep, everyone knows this is going to happen, and and it is so prophetic. You look at January six, and here's mm-hmm. the excuse: let's go, guys. And what will it actually take um, to push people into this kind of place? And you know, we see it a lot. I guess, yeah, a great story, great story. I really enjoyed it. it so, yeah. There's a, there's an absolute line in there that is just so hilariously offensive in terms of this guy's. But but man, it it hit me. Um, where he's basically just ragging on all the people that he hates and all these different minorities. And he, and he, he obviously does not like gay people, but then he has a little moment where he's like, but I guess I have a little bit of sympathy for gay people because it doesn't matter where you are in the world, everyone hates gay people. <laughs> you know? And like this inverted, like, you know, a snake eating its own tail morality that these absolute deluded monsters have in terms of thinking that within being my extremism that I still have a bit of the good guy in me and therefore my actions are defensible is so on the ball with this type of incelly type of character. And, and I love the fact that he gets hoodwinked both by the object of his desire and then also by the cosmic, you know, coming around to really screw him over. And you're right, that last line, it's getting hot in here or whatever it is, it's just yeah. an absolute winner. And I just felt like in that this particular story, I really... It, it lingered with me in a way that not all the stories in here, and I like them all. This is a very, very solid anthology. And I'm glad that there are stories like this in here because the because of the construct of the anthology itself, because it's all set in the first 48 hours, it is possible that this anthology as a whole could become very same-samey. Uh, and there, you've got stories like this, which are these really acute and sharp kind of jabs. And that that's what an anthology like this needs. And um, I just felt like I was in the hands of a master. And that's what Skip is like. Um, we need to be talking more about Skip uh, as as horror readers, like because he is still going strong and still still sticking it to the man, and um, it's uh, it's good stuff. 
Oh, definitely, definitely. But uh, Zachary, what is your final story you would like to talk about? But are there any honorable mentions you want to uh, talk about too? Yeah, again, I'm still torn between a couple because I mentioned that the first two were so strong and Joe Lansdale's story is so friggin' good. I think I started this one on the way home from work in the car and I just kind of wanted to do a couple of laps of the block to finish the story off. It was such a fun, fun story. So, But I guess everyone knows... Uh, how good Joe Lansdale is. Let me just check my table of contents. I thought The Day After by John A. Russo was really fun mm-hmm. as well. And I really loved the way he wrote. Um, I thought his prose was just so good. And it was all of those simple things that you taught, you do this stuff and, and it will sound good. And as you're listening to it, you're like, oh, that's brilliant. It's it's so well written and it's so warm and, and fuzzy. And I didn't actually realize until I, I, I know the name from somewhere. And I've actually got the Return of the Living Dead novelization sitting there, written by John Russo, and, and all, everyone who knows this stuff probably knows that. And I was like, oh, okay, so I've got to go and get that out sooner rather than later. So I'll give that an honourable mention. But the one that I thought was so different, it could have been because I did it on audio uh, as well, was I think it's called um, Orbital Decay, the yes. one where they're in space. That is a great story and as you're really feeling the panic as it comes through in so these guys are in space that they're contacting into a school to give i guess a zoom kind of presentation or a video presentation to the kids and tell them what space is like and they're like where are all the kids no one's here and and you can see they're sort of being palmed off as every everything's fine everything's fine and they keep having to deal with different people on the other end of the microphone or other end of the the, the video feed and something goes wrong and one of the guys dies. Uh, what he The other bloke is feeling really, really guilty about it. So when this guy comes back, he wants to help him out and, and do what he feels is right. And it just, things just get worse and worse from there. And as they're kind of in this helpless position in space, knowing they're running out of time, realizing that no one's coming to help them. I just thought it was a really, really kind of bleak story that just, spoke volumes about how powerful these stories can actually be because obviously you know the zombie doesn't always have to be a zombie it can be metaphors for whatever and particularly in our world where we've seen the pandemic and things recently we we know what this kind of social decay looks like on a on a large scale where you know i guess it comes back to that mean people would run at the zombie saying bite me you're not real in real life but um seeing that there are these people in these isolated positions who are unable to do anything about it and are just so brutally affected by it and just have to watch things crumble around them is just it was such a good story and the the audio production on this one if you if you've got the opportunity to listen to this um recording do it because it is fantastic and um it really really engaged me as as a listener and, and as a reader in, in terms of the, the personalities involved in the story, I think, because they use a couple of voices on the audio as well. Oh yeah, few people yeah. I one. think most of the uh, the the voice narrators of the stories are actually in this one, playing all the different characters. Yeah, it was brilliant. So yeah, I really, really, really liked this one. I thought it was something different and something really, really engaging. So yeah. Uh, what did you think of this one, Aaron? Well, I, I definitely want to listen to the audiobook now because I am sold so hardcore because this is one of those stories that absolutely just screams out to be read aloud and I really want to do, I want to do that, like ASAP. The thing that it reminded me of is like um, really randomly, but like it reminded me of Big Brother, you know, the show where the, you got these people in this completely synthetic, isolated environment where they're cut off by, from the world by design and unbeknownst to them, 
something really, really terrible happens. And there comes a point where someone's like, we're going to have to tell these guys that uh, like <laughs> September 11th happened or that, you know, we're going to have to tell them that, that, that a family member has passed away. And I love what you're talking about in terms of just the extreme isolation and the truth starting to creep in. But before they get a chance to probably anyone ever tell them, it, it blooms from within. So, so clever. So, so great. Um, this type of stuff, absolutely my cup of tea. And it's a really, really great one to 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 end on as well because it's so it's so cinematic. It's so incredibly cinematic. It's uh it's the type of thing I'm like, I literally after watching Creep Show when we finish this today, I'm gonna download the audiobook of this and I want to start straight with that because I just wanna I just wanna hear this. I think it's just spectacular stuff. Oh yeah, I really enjoyed this one as well. And I think since I did listen to the audiobook version of this novel this story in particular as zach said is definitely just what you have to listen to the audiobook version for this story because it is very cinematic like i don't know how this story was written in the actual book but the way how it's presented it is felt like an audio play like a radio drama i should say because it's very it has a lot of sound effects different actors voicing the roles and it's just a really compelling story and that just to answer your question Aaron uh, if you want to see a version of Big Brother that kind of <laughs> has zombies in it check out the TV miniseries Dead Set from Charlie Booker is that which is uh, I rem- oh yeah. my gosh I've been I trying to remember the that. name of that for years I remember f- stumbling across it on SBS to sound very Australian years and years ago and I was like what is this show and I've been looking for it for years ever since because it was so bloody good um Oh, Sorry, it's a great miniseries. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, it's a great <laughs> miniseries. So if people want to see that idea of a zombie apocalypse while the Big Brother household is happening, definitely check that one out. And hence, it was like before Charlie Booker kind of broke it, broke out with Black Mirror as well. So, mm-hmm. And also, I believe the director of the miniseries is now currently directing the upcoming MCU film uh, of Blade as well. So I'm very excited to see what he does with that but yeah i really enjoyed this story as well particularly the audiobook version it is a lot of fun it it how it progresses is really good the voice acting in this one is really good as well although i gotta say the um one of the voice actors in particular sounded a lot like jack lemon and it really just <laughs> and i felt like this person sounds way too old to be an astronaut in this uh, in this story but I, they it's still a really good one and as you both said, it's a very out of all the stories. It's definitely the most cinematic out of all the stories that's in the book. Uh, the, the, I also quickly before I forget, John, just as jumping back to uh, what you're talking about before, Zachary, about um, John Russo. John Russo wrote heaps of movies, like including Night of the Living Dead, mm. but also he uh, he he wrote a really really good one, um, good one called Midnight, which I is a is a random recommendation to throw out to fellow paperbacks from hell fans and there's also a really nifty film adaptation of it that's that's out of there on blu-ray too so check that out as well uh but look yeah dead set i'd forgotten about dead set i need to revisit that um and i've forgotten it was the dude who went on to do black mirror that makes absolute sense <laughs> definitely Can definitely and actually speaking of midnight i think i have the blu-ray of that somewhere around here too so i have everything in this yeah well i haven't watched it yet so that's i'm very excited to finally check up oh, there we go 
Oh That's my the, god, um, there we go. There's the man. So I remember watching Midnight. Um, it would have been like the Anchor Bay DVD. This would have been 15 years ago or so. And I watched this movie and it was like I started at one o'clock in the morning. It's the perfect time to watch Joe Russo stuff, right? And I literally was like, This guy, this was really good. I like this movie a lot. I jump onto Google, I'm like, is Joe Russo still alive? And I'm like, yes, he is alive. He's still alive today. Joe Russo has a website. I'm like, I'm looking through his website and there's like a contact me page. I'm like, do you know what? I'm just going to email him. What do I got to lose? Hey, Joe Russo, I just watched Midnight. I think it's great. I'm going to track down the book. Um, I've, I've I read at that point, I think I've read Return of the Living Dead and stuff like that. And yep. I went to bed. Anyway, ding, five minutes later, Joe Russo emailed me back saying, mate, that's so great. <laughs> Thank you so much for watching it. That this guy, this uh, Joe Russo was. I just, I just absolutely cherish that moment because, because it's Joe freaking Russo. So cool, so so cool, and it was so <laughs> generous of him. And he's like, I don't get many emails from people complimenting me on Midnight, so I wanted to touch base like straight away. I've got this email saved. It's like one of those things I've printed off. It's on my wall in my office. I just love it. Nice, That's very awesome. very nice. Um, I have quite a few honorable mentions. Like I won't go into them specifically, but there definitely were some stories that definitely stand out one that actually surprisingly got me in the feel feels is uh you could stay all day by myra grant i thought that was a great little story whereas as we follow a zookeeper as she experiences the oh, zombie yeah, apocalypse about what she needs to do because she as all this is happening she really is what am i going to do about all the animals so i'm mm. going to have to do something about it so that one uh, did surprisingly get me in the feels other ones that really stood out to me, and I'm just looking over the list of the stories, another one that's also very cinematic as well is uh, Live and on the Scene by Keith A.R. DeCandidito, which is a great story because it not only dives into uh, journalism, but also it dives into, because the main character is goes into the main character's Jewish heritage, and since he his name, the character's name is Harvey Lincoln, but his real last name is Lipschitz. So it kind of dies into his relationship with his dad because his dad feels that he's very ashamed of his uh, Jewish heritage. So it, that's a really good story in there. Another one is a uh, fast entry by Jay Bonasinger. That mm-hmm. one, another kind of mashup because it has a, the main characters, a psychic and how she deal, she works for the government and how she deals with zombies. Like, I think this one in particular could have done a bit more with the concept, but I still think it's still a good one. But out of all the stories, it has the most grossest description of zombie eating I have heard ever. And I, during the last part of this story, where uh, Jade describes how our main character is eating back a zombie, how it's written, I was actually kind of physically ill listening to it because it's so graphic and so descriptive. And I'll tell you one thing, I don't eat shellfish, but I'm never going to eat shellfish after <laughs> listening to that story. Awesome. But but, uh, my, but the story I do want to talk about is my last one. And oh, oh, another one I did enjoy was The Girl on the Table, which is uh, a short story that's very much tied into Night of Living Dead because it's entirely told from the little girl Karen's point of view as she's slowly becoming a zombie. And surprisingly, it becomes a very empowering story at the end of it. So I really enjoyed that one a lot. But the final story I do want to talk about, and it actually actually is one of two stories that Jonathan Mayberry contributed to the book, and that is Lone Gunman, which if I described this one, it would be 127 hours with zombies because our main <laughs> character 
uh, Sam, who is also a soldier, he, as, as it begins, he's un- under a mountain of dead zombies and he's trapped and it basically goes into his mindset on how he's going to get out of this situation because he's trapped there, he can't move, He's gonna, and we go into what he's thinking during these moments and like his backstory, who he is, what happened in the lead up to this. And also, like, what's he going to do to get out? But, of course, then things kind of take a bit of a turn where he discovers that something is also moving within the pile. And he thinks that, a, and, he, and he realizes that another a zombie is aware of where he is and is inching towards him in the bodies. And also, it kind of ends by tying itself back to Night of the Living Dead as he, he as, spoilers, escapes, he actually goes to the farmhouse where the the story of Night of the Living Dead takes place. So it's definitely one of the ones that actually does tie in with the actual film, like Girl on the Table, uh, The Day After, and a few others. But uh, I really like this one because the character of Sam is a really interesting character. And also I like that, again, it's written in the first person, but I dislike the idea of someone in a situation where, it, I guess in another one, you could see it as the film a zombie version of the film Buried starring Ryan Reynolds where they're trapped and you're and they're trying to figure out exactly what to do to get out and being in that situation is everything that's going on around them in the character's head because he thinks that as he knows there's something there but he doesn't know like is that is a body actually twitching or is it a deaf nerve is it a spider like it's a really cool story and uh this one I really dug a lot and, but uh Zachary what did you think of Lone Gunman yeah is it it's interesting isn't it? because it's, every time you mention a story, it's like, yeah, this was another good one because they're, they're, they're all good ones in here, which um, is, is always good. Um, but, yeah, that, like those scenes of that, as it's slowly coming closer, you know, and the way that builds tension is, and, you know, what it turns out to be is um, so fun. And as you do that, you can just see that. there. You can imagine yourself in that situation. You feel the claustrophobia of it as it's coming towards him, that, those scenes were, were, were really good, and I was really, really loving that. So, um, yeah, just, again, another fantastic story. Not much more to add. Just so good. Maybury's so good as well, you know, with, with his writing. He's an, another master, and that's what I mean. There's so many brilliant writers in this anthology as well, and it's it's not a surprise. It's really strong when you actually have a look at what these guys have been doing in the industry, what they've published, and Maybury's another one who deserves everything he has achieved because he's so damn good and this story is evidence of that as well and Arab, what did you figure this one um well once i got over my initial disappointment that this was not a story that tied the romero universe into the x-files universe yes uh, because i was totally thinking i was like we can the lone gunman like the the three guys from the x-files once i got over that initial disappointment I was here for this completely. The claustrophobia-based stuff really gives me the willies. Like, genuinely, it does. This is a type of story where you can kind of really feel the weight of all this stuff kind of literally coming down on this guy genuinely, which is why, and when it comes to that type of stuff, um, and this is linked through the Living Dead Daniel Krauss thing, one of my most anticipated reads is, I could be getting the title wrong, but I'm fairly certain it's Whalefall which uh, Daniel Krauss is releasing very, very soon, which is about a diver who is swallowed by a whale and he's got 
X amount of time to figure out how to get out using hardcore science before he is digested and the novel is written in real time. This type of stuff, and it's in this story by Maybury, really just kind of gives me the willies. I just, um, it really freaks me out. So there are a lot of fun stories in this collection. There was stuff that got me thinking. There was stuff that really, really tickled my funny bone. This particular one gave me the heebie-jeebies, and that's a great feeling because I actually think that it is, and you see this in Romero's films too when you look at, like, you know, the spread of them. Like, sometimes zombies are funny, like they are in the pie fight in, in, you know, Dawn of the Dead or in Survival of the Dead. There's that great gag where somebody's fishing off a off a rooftop and he, he's yeah. fishing up zombies. Like, it's just brilliant. And then there are times where zombies are really, really creepy and that the, the concept of comedy, that you remember, oh, wow, these things are really eerie. And the, and the idea of being buried under that, ugh, gross, love it. Yeah, imagine so the good. smell. Oh, no, nah, not for me. Everyone shits himself when they die too, didn't they? Ooh. Yep, yep. Look, there's a lot of there's a lot of seepage. <laughs> and it all runs downhill, not up, that's for sure. That's right. <laughs> Unless you're in outer space, in which case it might be. <laughs> <laughs> what I also love about the story is like in one description, like, cause again, he's kind of, yeah. Cause again, it's all in his mindset about what's going on. And I love the fact that at one point, like he feels something touches his face. And at first he thinks, Oh, it's a spider. Cause in his mind, he thinks it's a spider, which is if you're stuck in a pile of dead bodies, having a spot, a giant tarantula on your face, it's also a terrifying concept, but then he once he comes to, he realizes it's a dead hand from a zombie touching his face and feeling around. That it's such a great, like again, putting us in the mindset of this character. But it's just really good writing, and again, it's just so creepy. You, you just describing that literally made my skin crawl. Dead set. <laughs> Gross. Gross. I yes. can handle zombies, but giant spiders, hell no. Um. <laughs> no, no, no. I know I'm having a really bad day if I'm like, uh, is that a spider or a dead man's hand crawling on my face? I'm really, truly fucked either way. <laughs> well, that's the thing. If it was like, I, I could handle spiders because, you know, I grew up in the country, so I could handle big spiders and stuff like that, even though I can still get a little creeped out by it. But if it was a snake, I would have been petrified because I'm terrified of snakes. Oh, for me, it's the spider web. You know when you, if, if you know the spider's on your face, you know the spider's on your face. But when you're just walking and you get through a spider web, where is it? <laughs> your shirt comes off. <laughs> Those moments. Though. I'm so bad with this type of stuff. I can literally feel spider webs on me now. And if I can, I hope people listening at home can too. We're in discomfort together. It's the spider dance. Is uh, there is nothing like watching a like a, a a grown person just do that freak out dance? It's so good. <laughs> yeah. uh, it definitely is. It definitely is. But uh, I guess that could be a wrap on our discussion of the book Knights of the Living Dead, an anthology. And uh, before we wrap up, uh, Aaron, what are your final thoughts overall on the book? Uh, solid as all get out anthology. I think that Mabry's done some incredible work here. Uh, it's uh, you're going to get all of the feels. It kind of tickles all of the different, you know, kind of funny bones in my body. It also has got the creep factor that's real. Um, and uh, I kind of wish that there was a volume two that went beyond the forty the forty eight hours. Like I wanted to, you know, th this is a huge universe and it has absolute endless potential. 
I guess that's why I really like The Living Dead, which literally encompasses like 16 to 20 years. Like it literally covers 20s of the apocalypse. It's just insane at the scope of that book. Also, the just on that book, you get perspectives told in the first, like from the perspective of zombies. It is incredibly well written, incredibly well written because it's all hive mind. All the zombies have one mind. And so when the it's just the way it's told is incredible incredible um but this is and this is a really great pathway directly to that novel so i think it's completely feasible between those two books to just immerse yourself in zombie the zombie gloria of it all for a long period of time and i can't think of a better way to spend a a bunch of weeks honestly it's really good stuff definitely i'll definitely have to check that i will be for this show in the future so i look forward to finally getting around to reading it for that one uh, but uh, Zachary, what are your final thoughts on Knights of the Living Dead, an anthology? I think it says to me that I really need to read more anthologies to start with. I mean, it was just so strong because I, I, I often kind of, you know, will we'll pick a few short stories out of something and then I'll come back to it, you know, later on. And I don't read enough of it. It really made me feel, dude, you're wasting an opportunity to be taking in so many more authors. But I just I just loved how each each story felt kind of, um, complete as a whole, even if it was referring back to the movies, but also how they all contributed to this ongoing mythos where there are these slight variations. And it was like, because as I said, I've I watched caught up with the original movies again, the first three um, as I was sort of reading and then did the, the newest three. And it, I've just really immersed myself in, in zombie kind of, or Romero zombie for the last few weeks reading it or a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, really, really enjoying it. And I just think, if you're going to pick one anthology to get get a feel of, or and, you, and especially if you love zombies, this is such a great book. And um, yeah, I, I came away just going, "Wow, I should have read this a long time ago. I should have watched these movies a long time ago." And they're just, yeah, so easy. It's so easy to kind of overlook the the wealth of zombie literature at times, but then when you come back to the, the real core, it's just it's, it's so good. And I think, yeah, that's all I can say. It was so good. I'm just repeating myself. I, I did tend to do that. Great book. Great book. Go and read it. Yeah, I guess uh, for my final thoughts on the book, I really enjoyed the book overall. I think all the stro- stories are all strong in their own way. Some better than others, of course. Like, mm. But I think every single one are just solid. And like each of them has all different styles and tones. Uh, I love that each of them kind of tackle that 48-hour period of Night of the Living Dead in their own way, whether they do tie back to the original film itself or just have their own self-contained stories. And each one is just really good. And I just like hearing all these different authors, how their interpretations of Romero zombies, particularly within this world. And also, I would definitely recommend people to check out the audiobook version as well, because it is a great listen to, and particularly with certain stories like live and on the scene and orbital decay which are very cinematic stories that have a lot of sound effects and also feature a number of voice actors performing some of the parts but yeah i think it's just an overall great anthology book and one that i would definitely recommend anyone who's a fan of romero's work to check out because it's very obvious that all the this was a passion project for everyone involved and you could definitely tell that there's a lot of love there for this world within what these writers brought to it and also none of them just did just phoned it in like everyone 
brought in their own take on the stories and it was just a complete pleasure listening to at least this audiobook version anyway and the fact that again when you kind of find out that this book came out literally a week before George A. Romero's passing, definitely adds a bit more weight to it as well, especially with his entry within the story. But yeah, it's definitely one that I think everyone should check out. It's just a great anthology book. And it also reminds me, because I believe uh, Jonathan Mayberry in his intro, he mentions uh, Book of the Dead, which was an anthology book that came out in the 80s. That was kind of the first big book about zombies which also features quite a number of short stories including one from Stephen King so I kind of want to go back and give that a read as well so I look forward to checking out uh, more zombie literature as well so definitely worth checking out get it at all good bookstores everywhere or listen to it on Audible for sure. The Book of the Dead edited by John Skip? Yep definitely definitely (laughs) The man Definitely and uh, yeah, I guess that could be a wrap on this episode of Beat vs. the Living Dead. And thank you both, Aaron and Zachary, for coming on the show and talking about this book with me. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. Had a, had a blast. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Fun as. Right, let's let's do this again. I, I want I want uh, Days of the Living Dead and uh, and all of the other ones. I want multiple versions of this thing so we can keep talking about it. Also, Zach, you and we're going to be in the next book, volume two. well if they do release a volume two you guys are definitely more than welcome to come back but if i do have other (laughs) episodes of of this show in the future i need guests for i'll definitely call upon you guys so it should be so i look forward to that i'll I'll just give a shout out here too because aaron what's your i'm totally gonna give a shout out i've totally brain farted on the name of your book with um mark the the zombie one Oh yeah, so I I did write one. Um, I never thought I would write a zombie novel, um, and then I met Mark Allen Gunnels, who's a really really great guy, and I was just so enamored by him, and we we just hit it off. And he writes primarily zombie fiction, and I was like, mate, we should write something together. And he's like, sure, if you can come up with an idea. And literally on the on the flight home, I I, I messaged him. I'm like, what if it, it it was a a zombie novel set in a hospice where they euthanize people humanely before they turn into zombies, but after they've been bitten, um, and uh, it, and we caught, we wrote it and we together. It's called Where the Dead Go to Die, and it's um uh, yeah, it's a it's got a bit of a life to it. That actual novel that I never thought would. It just people read it, which is really nice. <laughs> so it's good. It's really I, good. I, I'm it's proud really of good. It. Thanks, mate. I appreciate that muscle. Ah, no worries. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, before we wrap up the show tonight, uh, Aaron, where can people find you on the internet this week? Do you have any books that are coming up that you'd like to promote for the show? And also, where can people buy your books as well? Sure, sure, sure. So if you people want to hit me up, honestly, look, for as long as it's still there and remaining, Twitter's probably where I'm most active, at Aaron Dries, or hit me up at AaronDries.com. Um, I'm also on TikTok, heaven help the universe, but it is true. I am there. I'm not doing my dancing unless I'm walking through spiderwebs like Zach has described. <laughs> um, I've got, what have I got coming out soon? I actually am in, a, in an anthology coming out this year called The Drive-In, like Tales from the Drive-In, I think it's called. All stories set within Joe R. Lansdale's Drive-In Universe, uh, which is edited by Brian Keane and uh, Christopher Golden. And I've got a story in that that I'm absolutely keen. I just think it's just really, really fun being a part of somebody else's universe. So I'm, I'm in that anthology 
and uh, yeah, just uh, I've got a recent release, which is Cut to Care, a collection of little hurts, which um, which is doing well. And uh, yeah, who knows what's around the corner? But uh, please feel free to reach out to me. I love meeting readers and also people who just love this weird horror, gross shit. Like, hit me up. You're my people. <laughs> and uh, Zachary, where can people find you on the internet this week? And also, do you have any books that you would like to promote? And as well, where people can get them as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess uh, Twitter is probably the easiest for me and there's so many other options that I'm sure like everyone else that have signed up for them all and have no idea what the logins are, where they are, what they're called, any of those things that have all happened in the uh, the, the, the chaos that has unfolded since uh, Elon Musk took over or Elon Musk as I like to call him now after having seen Sissy. But um Basically, on their Twitter, online, you can find me on on Facebook if you really want to. I'm not, you know, so I'm there. Um, Instagram, all, all the usual places that are kind of mainstream accessible for a man of my age. Um, <laughs> so I'm on TikTok as well, which is probably not mainstream accessible for a man of my age. Um, but, yeah, no, Google is always a good start. You can find me there as well. There's links to my website, that sort of thing as well. Uh, books coming out, I, I have... It should be going for pre-order really soon. My first novel, Polyphemus, is coming out on July 15. Uh, so far, early praise has been really, really awesome for that. So I'm really stoked because it's it's not just a short thing I wrote. It's a long thing. It's, <laughs> so I really want people to like it, which they seem to. Uh, some, some great blurbs. I, I managed to get 20 copies for a convention in the States. I went to Ghoulish Convention, which was a ton of fun, and, and they all got snapped up. And I thought I'd be bringing some back for the Sydney uh, the speculative writers festival there which i'll be at in sydney and um but i didn't bring any they all got they all got taken so i'm really happy with that uh, that should be out soon and i also have another novella coming this year which i just saw the first sketch of the cover last night so i'm really stoked that's a kind of ozploitation uh novella through crystal lake which is if you imagine if wolf creek if mick taylor was in service to some kind of big cosmic deity hiding in a swamp at the back of his house that's that one so it's probably pretty brutal but it's um it's good fun and yeah so pretty busy this year for the first time in a while so, <laughs> so thank you for the opportunity to waffle about it definitely definitely well you i'm glad you guys came on the show and you and thank you so much for appearing on this little show to talk about this book with me and uh for all of my listeners out there if you want to follow me on the socials out there you can find me at my official twitter account at twitter.com slash bjamite or my letterboxd account at letterboxd.com slash bjamite of course you can find all my work over at supermarcy.com and as well as all my other podcasts that i co-host with supermarcy such as the tubi tuesdays podcast the king's own podcast podcasters of horror the osboy cast and as well as the flagship show the super podcast and as well as you can follow the official twitter account of bead versus the living dead at twitter.com slash bead vstld and as well as listen to this show on all podcast streaming surfaces everywhere and as well please leave a rating and review as well and i will read it up on the show so that way it gives the show a bit more exposure so yeah that is the end for this episode of Beat versus the living dead i hope you all enjoyed this discussion and keep a look out in two weeks time for episode 40 in which i will talk about the 2021 remake of night of the living dead with the film rebirth so keep a look out for that and i'll see you all then see you everyone bye Thank you for listening to this episode of Feed vs. the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. 
keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at FeedVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.